Hello again. Thanks for that. It's good to see you. It's good to be up here again. My name is Pete, and uh, I get to preach with us today, which is good news. Uh, we're spending some time in the um, book of Micah here over a four-week period and showing how the prophet points forward to the coming of Jesus. I'm uh, guessing some of you probably came in today on Darley Road or frequent uh, Sydney Road or something like that. I think the Bible's a bit like that. There's some roads that we frequently travel on and then there's some that we, we don't go on much at all. Well, I'm guessing the book of Micah is probably like that, something that you may not have spent a lot of time in. But it's good. If you don't like judgment and the wrath of God that's depicted in the Old Testament, if you find it hard to stomach, then there's a chance that you might struggle a bit with Micah. And so it's worth kicking off before we start and saying that 2 Timothy says that all scripture is breathed out by God. It's useful for teaching, rebuking, training in righteousness. And so we love the Bible and we love Micah and I'm excited to preach but uh, how about I just pray for us before we get to work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you and for who you are. Thank you for the Bible. I pray that we would sit under its authority today. Please keep me from error, and I pray that your great name would be glorified. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was doing what um, most Aussies should have been doing this week. I was watching the first test match between Australia and India. And during the ad breaks, they kept pushing this new movie that's come out, Exodus, Gods and Kings. And uh, as producers tend to do, they, they add their spin on the biblical story. And this one, it focuses more not on God, but on, on these two guys, Moses and Pharaoh, and the, the battle for power between the two. Anyway, it made me, made me think about these two leaders and the way that they lead. On the one hand, one leads for himself, and the other, he leads for God. On the one hand, we have Pharaoh. He's a hard man, a slave driver. He exploits the weak. And on the other hand, we have Moses, a man filled with the power of God to lead God's people out of slavery. I think many of us, if not all, are in some way leaders of God's people, from ministers to small group leaders, youth group leaders, leading men's breakfasts to women's morning teas to leading by welcoming at the door or reading the, the Bible or praying. I think likewise, many of us are also God's people who lead in a non-church context. So that would be your school teachers and government leaders whether at work or at home, how you parent. And so I think it's worth asking, are you someone who leads with a heavy hand? Someone who's unfair or cruel, quick-tempered, driven by your own needs? Or are you someone who leads for God? Someone who leads with kindness and goodness and gentleness, driven by somebody else's needs? And so we come to the text today and what we see is a stark contrast of leadership. Israel's leaders, they lead for themselves. But Micah comes leading for God. And so for us, I want to kick off by asking the question, what does it mean to be God's leaders? What does it mean to be 
God's leaders. So bearing that question in mind, we drop anchor in Micah and we see what was doing almost 3,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Israel is about to be taken apart, punished by God at the hands of one of the biggest armies known to mankind at the time. Last week, we looked at chapter 2, which finishes with the hope of Israel, a time when God himself will be their head. But now, chapter 3 kicks off with, listen you leaders of Jacob, or listen you heads of Jacob. It's the same word in the Hebrew that's used to describe God in chapter 2. And so what we have here is a deliberate play on words for contrast. On the one hand, we have Israel's leaders who, who lead for themselves. They lead God's people into punishment. And on the other hand, we have God who will lead them into safety. And so back to our question, what does it mean to be God's leaders? And I think that the first thing we learn from the text is that God's leaders are to lead with justice. Justice is an attribute of God. God's justice means that in all circumstances, his actions are right, his actions are good. It's an attribute that is to be emulated, although in an imperfect way, by his people, especially his leaders. With leadership comes power. Power gives person the ability to uh, to act, to produce an effect. Our Prime Minister and his government, they make decisions using their power that affect us every day. Michael Clark, the Australian cricket captain, he has the power to make decisions that affect his team. And if they're bad ones, they affect the rest of us. But ultimately, all of this power, it comes from God. And we can use it in a giving way, a way that benefits everyone, or in a selfish way that benefits ourselves. It's God's expectation that his people lead differently, that they lead differently to the rest of the world. Last week I had a shower, not just one, I had a a couple. But anyway, I get in and I start doing my thing and I notice that in the uh, soap holder there's only a small little piece of soap in there. I don't really know what to do with that. It's too small to wash yourself with. It's too big to throw away or to squash down the drain. And so you just stick it on a new cake of soap. And a bit of water and a bit of rubbing, the two become one. It's very hard to see them apart. There's no difference. That is exactly the picture to describe Israel's leaders. As God's leaders, they were supposed to be different set apart, but they had become just like every other pagan leader. The text itself shows how far Israel's leaders had strayed from God's standard. Chapter 3, verse 9, Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, who despise justice and distort what is right. And back to verse 1, Listen, you leaders of Jacob, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil? You eat the flesh of God's people, strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces. They chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. This figure of speech illustrates the the indifference 
the violence and the self-service of Israel's leaders. I'm sure we're all aware of the likes of Pol Pot and his communist Khmer Rouge movement that killed at least 1.5 million people out of a population of only 6 to 7 million. They died of starvation, execution, disease, overwork. This is just one example. This is one example of injustice. The list goes on and on. And you need to bring up your search engine and have a look. You'll find pretty quickly the barbarous acts of cruelty that go on around the world. If you could have done an internet search 3,000 years ago, you would have found page after page of injustice carried out by the hands of Israel's leaders. In leadership, we've been given an office by God. We're supposed to uphold the cause of the weak. When this is abused, God is furious. God is furious and his anger rages. Hence, Israel's punishment. Although I've used an extreme example of injustice, I believe that God is absolutely concerned with even the things that we would consider trivial, the day-to-day things that we get up to, whether or not you just use people to get what you want, you push them and push them to make targets, to hit goals, just use them like commodities. And God is not okay with it. The Bible says that leadership isn't an opportunity to wield power over people, but to get down on your knees and wash the feet of the people that you lead. The expectation is that we lead with justice. The second thing is that we're to be leaders in the Spirit. That means that we're to be people who speak the Word of God in the power of the Spirit. I think generally people like to talk. You just find that area of interest to them and they're off. I spoke to this guy about fishing once and he was off telling me about all these fishing stories and how big they were and the wonderful places that he's been. I think his name was Bruce Clark. I'm kidding, but not really. You see, I love cats, don't judge me, but I love, we have this little Charlie cat, little fluff ball. He's got 300 followers on Instagram. That's more than Lisa. But anyway, I, I go ahead and I ask you about your cat. We find common interest and you're off chatting away about your little Mitzi and how wonderful she is. Just like us, the leaders in Israel, they loved to talk, but they were just full of hot air. They didn't speak God's word in the power of the Spirit. They just gave their own message. Have a look at chapter 3, verse 5. They proclaim peace if they have something to eat, but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. In other words, they say, if you just give to me, you'll be blessed. Imagine if during our annual commitment series that we just had, if Bruce Clark stood up here and fed us as much nonsense as he possibly could, if he told you that if you just give to him, you'll be blessed. But if you don't, well, you can expect fire and brimstone. 
All the while, Bruce is there planning what boat he's going to buy with the money that you gave to Neville Naden's church. It'd be an outrage. Well, that's what it was like in Israel. It was all about them, not God. I think we would be ignorant to believe that this kind of abuse doesn't happen today, where church leaders take advantage of their people's ignorance and feed them poor theology. Martin Luther in the 16th century, he fought against an abuse of God's people where they were told that if they only paid a certain amount of money, they would be given a slip of paper that freed them from all of their sin. Immediate entrance into heaven. A bit closer to home. Things like prosperity doctrine. If you give X amount, you'll be blessed. You'll prosper. This type of false teaching, it only leads God's people astray. Verse 5 tells us. Because that's not God's message, right? That's ours. And so in contrast, in verse 8, chapter 3, we have a prophet who comes filled with the power of the Spirit of the Lord. His message is God's, and it's not a good one. It reads, but, that's a contrast. As for me, I am filled with with the power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. This message doesn't pander to the ears of the hearer. It doesn't preach what we might want to hear. He preaches sin and judgment. This is just one godly man who stands in the power of the Spirit. He pitches his tent against the rest of society and what they're saying, stands firm. Lisa and I, we love coming to St. Matthew's. We know that here the ministers will preach God's word, whether it's palatable or unpalatable. Our church stands firm in God's word. In our ever-growing secular society, people are suspicious of Christians and the message that we bring. Why don't we just be more accepting of each other, accepting of each other's views? Let's pick apart the parts of the message that we don't like. And you Christians, you can toe the line, change the message to suit the world. The danger is that this worldly mentality of compromise infiltrates the church and its people. We don't need more people who compromise God's word, but we desperately need more micers. Micah's message was offensive and that's why Israel's leaders wouldn't preach it because it didn't meet their agenda. Just like today, the message of Jesus is offensive but we need to keep giving it. As with Micah's day, the, the whole point of God's message is not to condemn forever but to see people restored back to God. All of us, you and me, we love our Christian family and other witnesses by bringing not a watered-down message but a potent message of truth which sometimes hurts. Speaking God's word by the power of the Spirit leads people to God because it resonates with the Spirit living in us. And so on that, I have three points of application that I thought would be helpful. Point A is if we're to lead, if we're to lead in whatever capacity, We need to be people who hold fast to God's word. Cliche, I know, but true. 
what he says and not the world. Lisa gets a checkup, my wife, at the dentist about every 12 months. It's been so long for me that I'm not even sure that they would look in my mouth. We point, we, are, we immerse ourselves in God's word. We need, to, we need to do that more and not avoid it like I do the dentist chair. And B, we need to step up. This means Christian brothers and sisters bringing the unpalatable message to one another in accountability if there's ungodly behaviour. This prophet, he brings a stinging message of rebuke for sin. And in love, we might need to pull a brother or sister up. This doesn't just fall on your minister or your pastor. As a family, this falls on all of us. For example, you might have a Christian friend who's in a a sexual relationship outside of marriage. Is it okay to stand by and, and to say nothing, to keep the peace? Or you might have a Christian friend who is just bitter all the time. And maybe they had some expectation of what life was going to look like, but now it doesn't. And so they're just bitter. And everybody can feel it. You sit next to them and you can feel it. Is it okay to leave that unaddressed? Just to say nothing. Maybe a loved one drinks themselves under the table every weekend or uses his fists to vent frustration and then comes into church on Sunday and uses the same hands to worship God. Is it okay to just leave that? Let it go through to the keeper. It's not. It's not okay. We need to step up in love to see our brother or our sister restored. And see, we need to be teachable. For us, this includes being teachable in church and outside of it and heeding the rebuke of brothers and sisters where necessary. Something that might be helpful for you is this. I have a Christian brother who holds me accountable to the sin in my life. He asks me the hard questions, the insightful questions. He gives me two options. I either lie to him or I tell him the truth. And this is the way we hold each other up. It's hard for him to ask those questions, to lead like that. It's hard for me to be teachable by listening. But this is the way we hold each other up. And some of you might do this, and that's great, and you should continue to do it. Some of you uh, might not blatantly refuse. While your husband or your wife or your friend sits beside you now, just wishing and hoping that you will step up and get help. And then I think there might be some that think that you're pretty sweet and you can just keep cruising through life and not worry about it. I guess I would say to that that there's no such thing as an individual Christian. We we do this life together. We hold each other accountable by giving good counsel and sometimes out of love hitting each other where it hurts just like Micah did 3,000 years ago. Speaking God's word in the spirit points people to God. And thirdly, we're to be leaders who point to the good shepherd. Have a look at Micah 5, 1 to 2. 
Marshal your troops in our city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. And verse 4, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Here the prophet makes a direct statement that points to the coming of the Lord Jesus. Everything we do here is about Jesus. The church exists because of Jesus. We meet together in our small groups, men's groups, women's groups. We meet together because of Jesus. Everything is about Jesus. And so we're to be people all about Jesus. All of the prophets, they're pointing forward pointing forward to Jesus because everything is about him. We point to him because outside of him, there is no hope. And so firstly, we point to the good shepherd because he is our hope. Hope, hope gives us endurance. It gives us perseverance, even in the hardest of trials. In Micah, Israel is about to be punished. But Micah, he points forward. He points forward to hope. The original readers, unlike us, they don't go straight to Jesus. They didn't know who was was coming. But what they did know was that God had made a promise and that his promise was now being fulfilled. God made a promise to King David that God himself would establish the throne of a new king, who would sit at the throne forever. And now as Israel waits to be taken apart by foreigners, God gives them hope that that his promises, they never fail. He does that even even to the small few that might endure the, uh, the torments of exile as they wait for God's plans to be fulfilled. Hope in the scriptures is always a confident expectation. It never carries even the connotation of uncertainty that our word carries. For example, I hope so. There's no hope so about the biblical concept. We know that hope became a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, and we know that the God-man will come again and put an end to this broken world. Everybody needs hope. Outside of Jesus, there is no hope. Without him, you're in exile. And what's worse is you have no hope of ever coming home. I love people. I do most of the time, as long as you don't cut me off in the traffic. But seriously, I do. And there's nothing more distressing than meeting someone who's lost hope. I knew a young man once, a man that I loved dearly, And he came to me once without hope. It was one of the most distressing things that I've ever had to witness. Seeing somebody who had no light at the end of the tunnel, even in his dying moments, was tragically sad. People don't need more presents and stuff at Christmas. People desperately need Jesus. God's greatest gift to the world is the greatest gift that we can share to everybody else. So here's our hope. So finally, 
He is our peace. We point to the good shepherd because he is our peace. Have a look at verse 5, chapter 5. He will be our peace even when the Assyrians invade our land. Jesus is our peace in two ways. Firstly, he's our peace in a general sense. And this isn't a pie-in-the-sky peace. This is something that we experience now. We believe that he is our peace because God said he will be our peace. Even when Assyria enters the land, he will be our peace. Even when the Islamic State threatened to behead someone in Martin Place, we don't fear because Jesus Christ is our peace. In our now but not yet world, unfortunately, we don't experience an absence of war or conflict and God's people are not yet free from this conflict. However, partial peace is attainable in this life as we sit and rest in the shadow of our great King, the Lord Jesus. But secondly, it's the theological dimension of peace that concerns us the most. Through sin, we are naturally at war with God and his wrath remains on us until we experience reconciliation through the death of his most beloved son. In our place, for our sin. In John in the Gospels, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is the way that we experience peace with God. We point people to Jesus because he and he alone brings reconciliation by bringing two parties together who are naturally at war through our sin. It's all about Jesus. So as God's leaders, God's people in any capacity, we're to lead with justice in the power of the Spirit to point people to Jesus, the good shepherd of hope and peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for you. Thank you for for the beautiful sunshine that we get to enjoy today, the way that it warms our skin, for the beautiful conversations that we're going to have with people. And Lord, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Lord and our Saviour. I pray, Father, that you would give us the strength to be people who lead with justice, to be people who lead in the power of the Spirit, and that we always be people about Jesus, point people to Jesus, our hope and our peace. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pete.